turn in your Bibles to the book of Philemon. That's where we're going to be today. We are going to study the whole book of Philemon, but don't worry, it's only 25 verses, we'll get through it. Now Philemon sits in the latter half of the New Testament, it's right between Titus and Hebrews, so it might only be a page or two, and you might easily overlook it, that's where you'll find it. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help this morning, would you... Bring us understanding from the scripture. We pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the words here, would drive the truths deep in our hearts, would stir our affections for the gospel, for your grace, for the wonderful power of your gospel to transform our community. All of this to your glory, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Philemon, it's, it's lesser known, it's lesser talked about, it's a lesser studied book of the Bible. It's one of Paul's epistles, but unlike his other letters, this is a very personal letter. It does not contain Paul's deep rhetoric on a theological or philosophical topic. And if you're looking at a church doctrinal statement, you're not likely to see a reference from Philemon in one of the verses. However, this book is very meaningful and we have a lot to learn from it. It doesn't function as a deep theological treatise, but rather it deals with the implications of our theology. If we believe in the gospel, if we believe in salvation by grace through faith, what effects will that have on how we live? This sermon will close out a short series that we've been doing, recapping our core values as a church. We're looking to Philemon to remind us that we gather on purpose to experience and extend grace to one another. So let's read first the first seven verses of this, of this letter. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of your faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. In the beginning of the letter... We see that Paul is writing from prison, is likely dictating this letter through Timothy. And we can gather a few things about the recipient of this letter, who is Philemon. He was a convert due to Paul's ministry in or around Colossae. Apphia is traditionally thought of as Philemon's wife, and Archippus, his son. Archippus is mentioned at... Um, He's mentioned here as a fellow soldier of the faith and is specifically greeted at the end of Colossians as well, where he's encouraged to fulfill the ministry that he has received from the Lord. This here is a personal letter. It's written to Philemon and his family, but more than that, it's written to the church in Philemon's house. At this time, the church did not meet in buildings, especially due to the marginalized social and political status that they had. So they would gather in houses. 
Philemon was likely a wealthy man, as his house would have been large enough to hold the meetings of the church. And so also remember that though this is a personal letter written to Philemon, this was meant to be read aloud to the church that met in his home, and indeed for you and me today. What Paul is doing is he is appealing to the relationship that he has with Philemon, the mutual encouragement and prayer, the mutual love for the gospel, and prayers that evangelism would be fruitful. Philemon, we gather, is is one who loves well and he seeks to refresh the hearts of the fellow saints. It's important that we see a couple of things here in this opening. We need to see that Paul considers Philemon a brother. He treats him as a brother. He appeals to the brother relationship. We can also see that Paul considers him to be an honorable, loving, caring man. And these things are important because Paul is laying a foundation here to make an appeal to Philemon to do a really hard work. So let's not see this as a simple like buttering up of Philemon or an attempt to flattery, to manipulate him, but rather it's an appeal to the personal knowledge and care from brother to brother so that Philemon would know Paul's concern for him is genuine. And what I hope is going to become clear as we continue on is the power of the gospel to transform our relationships. We begin with these simple facts that God has reconciled Paul to himself, and through Paul's preaching, he's reconciled Philemon, his family, and others into relationship with him. This is an unseen spiritual reality that is then being acted out in the flesh. That Paul can be in prison and still united with his brother who is hundreds, maybe thousands of miles away. And their ability to call one another brother is because they have both been adopted by a common father. Because we have experienced such grace from God, we can extend that same grace to our brothers and sisters. Let's continue now and and get into the meat of this letter. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. (coughs) So we are now introduced to the particular occasion for this letter and a new person, Onesimus. Onesimus is a former slave of Philemon. I say former because the circumstance is that Onesimus has fled from Philemon and it's implied that he has stolen from Philemon as well. And somewhere along the way, this runaway slave, he encountered Paul, and he heard the preaching of the gospel. Onesimus put his faith in Christ, and he became a fellow brother to Paul. 
a servant of the gospel, an assistant to Paul, a disciple of Christ, a child adopted into God's family. And before we get into the awkwardness of the circumstances for Philemon, I want us to consider Onesimus, particularly verse 11, where it says, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. On every reading of this, this verse stands out to me with deep resonance of gospel transformation. And I hope you can see that you don't have to be a slave and a thief to know the power of the gospel. Before I knew Christ, I was trying to find my meaning and my purpose everywhere except for Christ. I was aimless. I sought out my own pleasure. I sought out making my own name great. And in every part of my life, I was focused on elevating myself, desperately seeking after meaning. But all of this is useless apart from knowing Christ. God is purposeful in bringing us this message through a slave here in Scripture because living a self-focused life is a life in bondage to sin and to death, always seeking meaning that we cannot find Because our purpose and our meaning is to be reconciled to our creator. To know Christ, to live for him. So if you are a Christian, you can resonate with this. We know that feeling to be living a life that is useless and broken. And then to be transformed and find that identity and that life that we're so desperately seeking. And to find find it, we had to recognize that it wasn't a work that we could just simply do. It had to be freely given to us. We cannot earn our place in God's family. We must be freely adopted by him. In this, we all go from having a former useless life into one that is useful to God and to his people. So you and I can resonate with the transformation that Onesimus has experienced, but of course for him, there's a much deeper significance here. There's a play on words because Onesimus, the name, actually means useful. It was a common practice for slave owners to name their slaves with words that they wanted the slave to live up to. And I hope it goes without saying how deeply dehumanizing such a practice is, not just in owning another human, but by trying to control their destiny with a name as though you were God in control of another person. But here, what man has intended for evil, God will redeem for his purposes. God has grabbed a hold of Onesimus and has brought him to live up to his namesake, not in terms of being a good, obedient slave, but rather to show true purpose, being a servant of Christ, a servant of brothers and sisters, rather than himself. And Paul has been deeply impacted by Onesimus, calling him a child, calling him his very heart. We need to see how Paul is building on this love that he expressed for Philemon and his household to show that same love, tenderness, and care to Onesimus. And so with this, we return to the awkwardness of the moment with Paul's appeal to Philemon. Paul is exhorting Philemon to reconcile and receive Onesimus, his runaway slave and a thief. Paul is sending Onesimus to him not to be a servant in his household, 
and not to continue repaying his debt, but instead to be received as a brother. Let's look at verses 15 and 16 again. (coughs) For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul appeals to the mystery of God's work that maybe this was the purpose all along. That Philemon lost him for a while, but what he has gained back is so much more and so much greater than a mere bondservant. He is receiving back a brother. And not only in a spiritual sense either, both in the flesh and in the Lord. We must see that what God has done on the spiritual plane is being worked out in flesh and blood in the church, okay? Because God has reconciled Onesimus and made him a child, Philemon can accept him as a brother. Paul began the section by saying he would be bold enough to command Philemon in this way, but he wants to appeal to him instead. Paul is choosing not to wield his authority as apostle, but appeal to him with gospel grace. He addresses this letter, as you recognize, not as Paul an apostle, but as brother in chains, reminding the church that they are on the same side. They are equals in this. They are taking part of the same grace together. And Paul is appealing to Philemon because he is confident that the same grace that has redeemed Onesimus will also have a transforming power in his brother Philemon. This uniting of slave and master as brothers in Christ is not a work that is being done by human ambition. It's not something that is being commanded by man. This is a mystery working of the gospel that is only possible because of Jesus. With this, let's dive deeper into what this is going to mean for Philemon to receive this. In verse 17, So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or he owes you anything, charge it to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. We would do well to remember that these letters were not delivered by a postal service, but these letters are handwritten and hand-delivered. A man named Tychicus is mentioned at the end of many of the letters of the New Testament as one who is going to give more information, that's going to tell of all things that are going on, and that's implying that Tychicus is the one delivering the letters. It's likely that Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon were all delivered together because they date back to the same time and the same delivery person. I bring this up because in Colossians chapter 4, the end of Colossians, Paul writes that Tychicus will tell you about my activities, and along with him, he is sending Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place. Onesimus is commended to all the churches as one of their own. 
I bring this up because, firstly, this means that Onesimus went from being a runaway slave to one who would hand-deliver the word of God. Is God's grace amazing or what? Secondly, he was present as this letter was being read aloud and handed to Philemon. Paul exhorts Philemon, if you consider me a brother, if we've truly taken part of the same grace together, if we're on the same side of this gospel mission, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Paul goes the extra step to stand in the gap between these two brothers to reconcile them. If there is outstanding debt or payment, charge it to Paul's account. Paul even grabs the writing utensil and rewrites with his own hand, I will repay it. And what this did is it made that letter a legally binding statement written and signed by Paul. Paul is staking his reputation, his life, and even his finances on this brother. Paul is so convinced of how the gospel will transform relationships that he is willing to stand between these brothers to make peace. Receive Onesimus just as you would receive me. It's one thing to hear of the radical forgiveness in Christ, how all of us were enemies that he made friends, that we're to love our enemies in the same way, that we forgive our brothers 70 times seven times because of how we were forgiven. We know these ethics, we preach these ethics, and it's a whole other thing when we have to practice it. Putting our money where our mouth is, which is literally the case for Paul and Philemon. So let us not downplay or soften the sacrifice and the cost that has to take place for this radical forgiveness to happen. It's not cheap. It's not easy. We don't get the picture here of their reunion when Philemon and Onesimus finally come together their first time alone together, the first time face-to-face, holding the full weight of the awkwardness of their interaction. We don't get that picture, but I think of it similar to the prodigal son walking up to his father. Onesimus standing there while Tychicus reads aloud Paul's plea for Philemon to receive him, to accept him. Just think briefly of someone you have wronged someone you've sinned against, someone you've treated poorly, and standing before them while someone is pleading your case. The shame and regret that Onesimus would be holding in that moment. And like the prodigal son, the obligation that he would feel walking up to his former master's house, he's stolen from him, he's deserted his post, wondering what he's going to say, wondering what Philemon is going to think, Will he ever truly receive me? Or will he always hold this in the back of his mind, just waiting for me to screw up, waiting for me to disappoint him, only just to usher me back into servitude because I was not worthy in the end of being his brother? And then Philemon, on the other hand, he'd have to swallow so much pride. He's entitled to hold this against Onesimus. He's entitled to make him work to pay all of it back. 
Not only the monetary debt, but also the relational debt. One that's satisfied only when I'm satisfied. He's entitled to keep Onesimus at arm's length or, or keep him at a lower tier because of what he's done. And on hearing this letter, Philemon in the back of his mind might be thinking, well, he better have a good enough apology. Is he going to feel that guilt well enough to satisfy me? How will he prove to me that he's worthy of being my brother? The reconciliation of these two brothers is possible because Christ has already paid the greatest debt. Neither one of them has the high ground here. Neither one has the moral superiority but instead they come together as two brothers adopted by their heavenly father, not by works of their own, but because of the grace of the father. They are at equal footing by the grace of the gospel, and they're freed from the earthly bondage to demand power over one another. They are freed to be brothers. This kind of forgiveness is radical to swallow pride, to forget your shame, to truly stand forgiven, reconciled, redeemed, not as a slave, servant, or worker, but as a brother. They are letting what is true about them spiritually to be worked out relationally. When we forgive each other, when we offer such deep grace to one another, we all get to it experience and relive the gospel in a very tangible way because it takes something that it can be so abstract and otherworldly and we put flesh and bones on it. We get to experience and extend the grace to one another and feel anew the power of the gospel worked out in our lives. We work it out on the physical plane because it's already true on the spiritual plane. They can be brothers in life because they are brothers in Christ. I want to zoom out briefly here and address the slave-master relationship as we talk about it here. Obviously, a tense topic. I want to be careful not to overburden us with talking about it, but it's also we can't ignore it here in the text. And I cannot give a full theology on it right now, but there are some things I want us to see here for the text. The majority of the time that the Bible speaks about slavery, it's not making a judgment call one way or another. It's merely stating it as fact. Scholars believe that up to a third of the known world at this time was in some kind of slave labor. It's so commonplace that when Paul addresses slaves and masters, he addresses them alongside husbands and wives and children as another part of the household. So we, we need to have a category in our mind of human servitude that is indentured labor, that's paying off of a debt, and even, even of those historically shown that in their freedom would continue living and serving in their master's house and taking their master's name as their own. However, we also must realize that chattel slavery, and this is what you might think of with the transatlantic slave trade, stealing and selling people into forced labor, that wasn't invented by Europeans. It has been a practice throughout human history. So this complicates the issue 
Because when Paul addresses these households and relationships, we cannot assume the circumstances of the slavery. In addition to that, we don't have Paul acting as a strong abolitionist here, using his platform to completely change the social, political, and economic structure of the Roman Empire. It's very possible that Paul could not foresee the day where Christians would even have the place to speak into society to affect systemic changes. But we see what is at the forefront of his mind is that the gospel undermines slavery. Paul is acting pastorally to both slave owners and slaves that he is discipling. And that is a remarkable thing in itself because every single person as image bearers of God deserve to hear the good news of the gospel. Grace is not being limited to those of a certain social status and humanity, personhood, and dignity are being given to all people, slave or free, regardless of the form of slavery, historically, regardless of the form of the slavery, treating the slaves as fellow humans was not the norm. When Paul instructs households, he teaches that the gospel compels masters to a different ethic within the treatment of, their, of those in their service. And equally so, he gives different ethics to a servant, that their service is to the Lord primarily, and they can have dignity in their work because of that. So seeing talk of slave and master in the Bible, it hits our modern ears in an awkward way, and rightfully so, because we have a lot of baggage surrounding the issue. But I want you to see that even though Paul is not giving a manifesto of how to abolish slavery, it is the very teachings that we see here that undermine slavery. The seeds of dignity for all, seeing a slave as a brother, welcoming slaves as equal in Christ, these teachings were the building blocks that inspired the modern-day abolitionists. There's more to be said on this issue. Please come talk to me after the service if you have further questions or comments. But as we, we use this and we turn to think about how this letter impacts us today, I want you to see that it is to our benefit that we wrestle with this relational dynamic. We need to see the power of the gospel here to turn a slave into a brother and to turn a master into a servant of his slave. This is a radical work that can only be done by grace. And this, if this is possible, if this is possible, what lesser social conventions are then possible in the church? An easy lateral example would be the employer-employee kind of relationship. Imagine the CEO of a company comes to his or her local church, where at work they have all the power, they have all the authority, and they come to church and they willingly submit themselves to a servant role. It shows how great the gospel is that we can experience that. But how much more so if they come to church and the janitor in their building is serving as an elder or a deacon in their church? The CEO having to humble themselves to the servant leadership of the lowest person in their empire because the gospel transforms and transcends our social conventions. Now, the average example in our life might not be so dramatic. 
The gospel is just as real and powerful as you interact with somebody who's just different than you. They might have a different social class. They might be poor or they might be rich. They might have a different skin color or language or culture. Maybe they're a Democrat. Maybe they're a Republican. Our church is baby boomer, millennial, Gen Z, and Gen X, if you, if you count that. But none of us have the high ground. None of us have the correct, objective, societal outlook. And we can come together. We can extend grace to one another. We can fellowship. We can break bread together. We can submit ourselves in service to one another, all because the gospel is real and powerful, and we are indebted to Christ for his saving grace and mercy. And if ever for a second we think that there are people that I cannot worship with and fellowship with here, we must remember that the gospel is so powerful and real that it even can take a slave and a master together to worship together as brothers, as equals. So can you. So can you. This radical kind of unity, it also empowers us to take steps that seem impossible apart from the gospel. We will wrong one another in the church. I wish it weren't so. If you were a part of my elective class this summer, you will remember me addressing three reasons or three ways that we hurt one another. The reasons are we're sinners. We're awaiting redemption. We are also children awaiting maturity. We act selfishly. We are childish. Whether you're nine or you're 90, it's just a fact. We are also broken people awaiting healing. The beauty of the gospel is that even though these things are true, we have the hope of the complete redemption of our bodies. And in the meantime, the gospel is powerful to repair broken relationships. Paul is teaching Philemon and Onesimus that he is so confident in grace and forgiveness that he could send a thief back to his victim and they can worship again as brothers. This is possible because of what we owe to Christ and not to one another. The spiritual reality of our redemption is so great and so powerful and true that we can bring it into our personal relationships. Even the future complete redemption of all things is so sure that we can work out that reparative relationship here and now. So this is a call to you, believers. If there is another person in this church, if there is another believer that professes Christ that you have tension with, that you have unforgiveness with, move to them. Be reconciled and restored to them. Extend grace and forgiveness because Christ has so received you. In addition, be like Paul. Stand in the gap between believers. Be a peacemaker. Offer to mediate the conflict. Indebt yourself to both parties in order for the grace and redemption to be present and experienced in our midst. May we be Christians who not only speak of redemption, but seek to live it out in our church and in our lives. Let's read 21 and 22 here. Confident of your obedience, 
I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Paul tells Philemon he is confident of his obedience. And we need to take from Paul that he is confident in the work of the gospel. But he's also confident in Philemon's understanding of the gospel. He is confident of what the gospel requires and empowers. He says throughout that he could require this of Philemon. He could command it. He could simply say, Philemon, you owe me this. But instead, he wants Philemon to see that this is the regular outpouring of the gospel. He is inviting Philemon to experience the power of grace. So we must ask, do we believe in the power of the gospel? Are we letting the gospel do the work? Let's not cheapen our own experience of the gospel by limiting grace and forgiveness. Let us be compelled to bold, radical love to our brothers and sisters. In the end, the case is left unknown. We're not told what Philemon chooses. Given the reasoning, the evidence, the urging, the conviction, it's clear what he should choose. But without showing us the answer, it stands in Scripture forever as a question mark to all of us. Will we view our brothers as those transformed by Christ and not by their works? Will we think of what Christ paid rather than what we ourselves are owed? Will we practice the radical forgiveness that Christ showed us by, by welcoming even our enemies as brothers and sisters? It stands as a question mark for each of us. But the truth of the gospel and the grace of Christ give clear direction to do the hard work of grace-filled fellowship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for truth. Thank you for grace that we have experienced so deeply that you have transformed each of us from being useless to useful for your purposes for the fellow saints. God, may you drive the truth deep in our hearts that we would long to see redemption happen, not in other people's lives, but that we would experience it ourselves in our relationships, doing the hard work of grace. Because you have shown us how, because you've paid the ultimate cost, and because you are worthy, Lord. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. I'll stand as we close and sing.